Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hello, listeners. I'm Nina Nandy, one of your AGA Small Talks Big Topics podcast co-hosts. And I am honored to introduce episode one of our interview with Dr. John Carruthers, the current reigning AGA president. He is an extraordinary man of exceptional accomplishment. Dr. Crothers has a long history of dedication and service to the AGA, an impressive academic career, and a strong commitment to mentorship. We are going to get personal today and talk about his leadership roles and important career advice for trainees. So without further ado, let's get into it. So Dr. Carruthers, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us who you are, what your roles are, and what you're doing now with the AGA? Sure. Pleasure to be here today. My name is John Carruthers. I am a gastroenterologist for the last now 20 years, believe it or not. I have been fortunate to be selected by the nominating committee to be on the governing board, and this year I'm president of the AGA. I'm currently located at the University of Michigan. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Internal Medicine there, and in three months I will be changing my location. Where are you going? I am going to become the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at University of California, San Diego. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And it's exciting and nervous at the same time. Big job. Bigger than the job I have now. But hopefully I've prepared well for it. And we're so glad you made the announcement here. So everyone, you heard it here first. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Yes. Claiming the exclusive. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did tell my wife first. Oh, uh, (laughs) No, she deserves it. Yes. (laughs) And then my boss also. (laughs) Fair. Your other boss. Yeah. My other boss. Yeah. All right. You You heard it third here then everyone Okay, third. Third. Yeah. (laughs) There is uh, now a public announcement out there, so it's been circulating, and the response has been a little bit overwhelming. I think everyone's excited. That's really it. That's really amazing. I like how, but we still hear it here first because we recorded your voice saying it. Everywhere else, it's just print, you know? Beauty of a podcast. I would say 99% is exciting. There's a few that are not happy with me leaving, which makes you. me feel a little sad. And not, not because they're unhappy. It's, there's a piece of me here, and there's a piece of me that will stay here as well at Absolutely. Michigan. So, Dr. Crothers, since you are the current AGA president, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your involvement with AGA and what you do. Sure. I've been a member of the AGA since 1993. I don't know if you guys were born yet. <laughs> Maybe so. I'm just That's teasing. very nice, but inaccurate. <laughs> very kind. <laughs> I was pre-born. No, I'm joking. I'm Speed joking. <laughs> I like that. I joined as a fellow. I started my fellowship in 1992, joined in 1993 when I, I did a three-year fellowship. GI was only mandated to be two years back then. I was on the research track of my fellowship, and my mentor said, you need to join the AGA because you're going to be doing research, and you're probably going to be submitting some things down the line. I didn't submit anything that first year. After joining the AGA and starting getting gastroenterology, because back then there was only one AGA general, there's now five, 
probably around 1996, so I was a young faculty member and joined my first committee. At the time, it was called the Underrepresented Minorities Committee. And I spent, I think, three or four years on that committee. I actually rejoined it several years later before I switched to the Diversity Committee. Since then, I've been heavily involved in multiple committees. The AGA Council, I was vice chair and chair. I was a co-director of the postgraduate course. I was on a committee on trainees and young GIs. I was a committee member on the research policy. I was twice on the nominating committee that helped select the future president, senior social editor for gastroenterology. I'm probably forgetting a few stuff, but, and then involved with some of the more current programs like the Investing in the Future program and the Future Leaders program, the Finance and Operations Committee, the Forward program. I think the better question to ask is what have you not done, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, there's a lot I haven't done, but I think that involvement in the committees got me much more entrenched into the AGA and mm-hmm. eventually a couple times let me put my name in for possible run on the governing board in the presidency. And so I think it was the second time that I got in. So usually these things don't happen on the first try anyway. But I am having so much fun. The AJ has been with me for my entire GI career. It's really the voice of the science and practice of gastroenterology. And it's very interesting being president now of the organization with all the things. Just this month, this September, I've had three AGA trips. I'm kind of jealous of my predecessors like Dr. Nandomi because the last three presidents were Zoom presidents and <laughs> they didn't have as many yeah. trips, but they got me running around this uh, this year, which is good and bad, <laughs> but important for the organization. Get your sky miles, right? I get my sky miles. I am curious, besides being president, we'll take that off the table for a second. Do you have a favorite committee or role that you had over those years? On the AGA? Yeah, on the AGA. I mean, of every committee that you were on. Wow. They're all a little different. I liked some of the stuff with the research committee because you review and interview. So I assume they still do this. We would review applications for grants like the, the Research Scholar Awards, and then we'd interview them, I mean, in person. That's a different process than now. So I don't know if they continue that or not, but we would wean it down for so many applicants, and then they'd be invited for an interview, and we, they'd have to do a presentation, uh, kind of like a chalk talk, but only for about five or ten minutes. So that was kind of fun. And I've used that for many other things I do as a chair, chalk talks for some of our young people across the department for some of the the awards we have. So I did like that. The nominating committee is very interesting because that's an interesting process where the past president chairs that committee. So I think next year, I think I chair it. The long letters, the CVs, you know, people coming to be who are interested in being a consular or vice president, and then delivering on that with the swath of people in GI from young to senior on these committees that help select. And you can only be on a nominating committee at a, a minimum once every five years. So if you're on it, you can't be on it again for at least five years. I was on it twice. Why is there that like embargo period? 
Well, it's not really embargo. It's just to give other people a chance to be on the committee. And so they don't want the same people getting on the committee again. I was on it twice, but it was separated by several years. So it's just to give other people a chance so it's not monopolized, I think. Full disclosure, just not to put her on the spot, but Nina will be serving on the nominating committee. I am. I get to go to a meeting in January. <laughs> yes, I'll be there. You'll have Yay. fun. You'll definitely have awesome. fun. I'm very, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's a fascinating process. I like that committee because you learn a lot. You try to figure out who's good and from amongst multiple good people, but you can only select one for some of these roles. And yeah. so that's the hard part. And I know when I went up the first time, you know, I remember I getting a call from the president. It was, I think it was uh, David Lieberman at the time, who was past president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, sorry, John, you didn't get it, but I would encourage you to put it in again because people liked your nomination. And then I went in like a year or two later and then I got on the board. So only one person could get it. So there's some great people trying to get the positions. And we need really good people, by the way. Maybe speaking of which now, as the president, I actually love the newsletters that you send. You know, you have the top five things each month. Maybe as an overarching goal, just for our listeners, what are the sets of priorities that you would like to address during your presidency this year? So the big things, some of them are continuing from previous president. You only get to be president one year. That's the structure of our organization. So it's not like a company where you could be president for multiple, multiple years or a president of a university who might be in there for 10 or 15 years. You're president one year. So you have to work with the other people on the governing board sometimes to continue things as well as maybe start new initiatives because it's, I think it's kind of hard to finish things in one year. So I'll tell you a couple of things that we're continuing and a couple of things that hopefully we'll initiate. Number one is continuing the AGA equity project and that's going into its third year that will start under President Bashar Omari, furthered by John and Domi and furthered by me. We're in year three, and it was designed to be at least a three-year thing where equity is inculcated throughout the entire organization, and that's been going extremely well. And so that is a continued priority, and hopefully we won't, at some point, won't need the equity project because it's part of our DNA. It's natural. Another thing that was more started with John and Domi's year was the push for removing some barriers for colon cancer screening. And my whole professional career has been worked in colon cancer. So John started a group to find the screening continuum that we kind of all knew, but no one's ever put it on paper. And that white paper came out, I believe, in May or June this past year. And then we've been pushing that publicly, as well as pushing to remove some of the barriers. So under John's leadership, he got one of the rules changed for private insurers to reduce the copay. And (laughs) I started literally in June. By middle of June, I was on 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 a Zoom with the CMS administrator. (laughs) And by July, they changed their mind, and CMS agreed that having a positive non-invasive test was not the completed test until a colonoscopy was done. And that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, 
who might delay their colonoscopy because there was a copay. And so that's CMS. So that is the standard bearer across our land. And so that was a huge victory. And that happened within like the first month and a half of me being president. So I was like, this is how my whole president is going to go. It's like boom, boom, boom. But that's not the way it always goes. Uh, but that was a huge, huge victory. And now we're some of the next things have to do with getting those things completed now because we're trying to remove some of the barriers. So this means can we increase our completion rates for colonoscopy, particularly after positive tests? And can we increase the screening rates for colon cancer? It's, we've been stuck in the mid-60s overall. Can we push that up with some of these barriers being removed? We just had 18 million people jump onto the bandwagon um, from 45 to 49-year-old. And that's, I wouldn't say clogging up, but adding to the backlog of people needing to get in. And I think everyone's feeling that. We do push and embrace non-invasive screening as well. They can be very effective. They are very effective. I told this someone one day, I hope all of you guys went into GI because you love GI, not because you just love a procedure. And that's a distinction I say because when I started in GI, we didn't do screen colonoscopies at all. That came later. So a lot of people don't realize CMS didn't pay for screen colonoscopy until 2001. That's colonoscopy so, so, was so late. Yes, wow. colonoscopy was added to the screening after the National Pulp Study in 1997. And I completed my fellowship in 1995. So that was not the standard. When I was a fellow, everyone wanted to learn ERCP and do some colonoscopies, but it was ERCP, ERCP. But look what happened to ERCP. Mm -hmm. ERCP went from a diagnostic and therapeutic test to solely a therapeutic procedure. At some point, maybe, maybe by the end of your career, colonoscopy may be that way because we have a lot of non-invasive tests, not with the same specificity or, or sensitivity just yet as colonoscopy. Actually, some of them do have similar sensitivity for cancer, but not for precursor lesions. But those over time will likely get better. And we may be sitting here 20 years from now, 25 years now, and colonoscopy is only a therapeutic procedure, much like an ERCP. So times change as technology and non-invasive ways to go through. So all I'm saying is one of the messages to get out that we're pushing part of this colon cancer continuum is that we need to use all of our tools for the volume of people that need to be screened if we're going to continue to shorten the uh, lessen the number of people getting cancer. One of the areas I'm pushing on this too particularly this year, and hopefully we'll continue into Dr. Young's administration next year, and I've talked with her about this, is to try to reduce the disparities in colon cancer screening. Some of the gap for screening had dropped up until COVID. I'm bracing myself because some of the early numbers aren't good post, well, I shouldn't say post-COVID, post-surge COVID, <laughs> if you will, that the recovery of people getting screened seems to be different amongst different racial and ethnic populations. And some of the modeling show that that narrowed gap is going to widen again, and we might be set back 
maybe 10, maybe as much as 15 years. That's crazy. Mm. Yeah, it wow. is crazy. And so I'm worried about that. And so we have to get the message out. And then again, this is another important thing is that we have to use all of our tools at our disposal to get people screened. And it's going to be different for someone living in rural Appalachia or in the middle of urban Chicago versus someone who lives in suburban New York. The tools are going to be slightly different. The access might be slightly different. One of the big things that I'm going to be pushing is the idea of navigation. Now, no one pays for it, but there's great studies that have been published both on colonoscopy and with non-invasive tests, the most recent by Chuck Debaney in June of this year, showing that you can eliminate disparities by doing navigated either colonoscopy or non-invasive test screening, but we don't do that universally yet. And no one pays for navigation, at least not that I know of right now. And navigation, there's different levels of it. I mean, you can take someone's hand and walk them through the whole process. It could be by the phone or text, so there's different levels of it. But can that be pushed? And that's probably going to take a few years, but can that be pushed through advocacy and coverage to help eliminate disparities? Because the studies show with navigated screening, non-invasive or invasive, that you can eliminate the disparities. With this navigation, does it have to be target audience specific? Like, you know oh, yeah. what I mean? Is it a navigator for everybody, all comers? Or is it like a navigator for a specific population to help that population? The latter. So the idea would be that the definition of what's equitable is different for each person. I remember it was someone had a thing about the the ladder over the fence and the short person or tall person. So tall person doesn't need a ladder. The short person does. They need a ladder. And so you have to give them that boost so they can get the same eye level over the fence to see the ball game or whatever. The same thing as that was navigation would do. It would have to be a targeted. So could that be tied to someone's income? Could it be tied to someone's you know, they're on Medicaid versus something else. I mean, that would have to be worked out. But yeah, it would, I mean, someone wealthy who's going to get it done anyway is not, <laughs> why waste the money on that person when they're going to get it done already? I mean, you could you could have it available, but I think it's going to have to be targeted. Yes. What are the, and you may not be able to fully answer this, but what are the tools available to the AGA to really push out that message? Is it an advocacy project? Is it a physician education project? Is it everything? Like, How does the AGA leverage these, these drivers, these goals? Wonderful question. So the AGA is an organization that represents 16,000 gastroenterologists, and our big thing is education and training, trying to advance the science of GI, and advocating for our members particularly our largest group, which are clinical members, through interactions with state and federal governments. And that's what we do. And so it's going to be all of that. In fact, the AGA, there's a whole staff and a vice president on just government relations and the staff on that. And we do that pretty well. We partner with other GI organizations the whole CMS thing, we partnered with the um, patient advocacy group, Fight uh, Colon Cancer, Fight CRC, I think it's called, and then with the American Cancer Society. And we were mentioned in the CMS director's report because we were 
there at the table talking to him. Some of those same groups were, David Lieberman was our representative, but they were at the White House about the cancer moonshot and advocating for, you know, colon cancer screening at the White House earlier this year. I think that was in July. So advocacy is a big part. The education, well, most of our members want to get paid a reasonable amount for the work they do and take care of patients, and they're, they really want to do that. And so we advocate for hopefully adequate pay rates for our members through the RUC, which is the RVU Utilization Committee. And there's, you know, we have some connections with some members on that. We have connections with everything from the FDA, CMS, through our government relations. This is a big piece. The education training is going to also be good because making that very familiar and, and using the power of our 16,000 members to write letters to Congress or make statements with their local congresswoman or congressman for some of the things for pushing this is going to be key. I was just at a meeting yesterday with Dr. Nadomi, two of the vice presidents with the makers of Cologuard, and I'm not a stockholder and things so full disclosures i don't own anything or disclosure anything. acknowledged yes but they have supported some of the aga programs through financial contribution as do many other under other industry partners obviously they deal with a non-invasive screening and we're trying to leverage even industry in pushing some of this as well so this is a multifaceted idea. The interesting thing is some of those industry partners are wedded. They really want to see a reduction of the non-use of non-invasive as well as colonoscopy tests. And I think many of our members do too. So how to get that fully completed is going to be a key push that we're doing this year, and I, I hope uh, some of my successors continue that as well. Lastly, I'll say is that a lot of that's on colon cancer, but that, I, I know that pretty well, and I'm sure all you know that too as well. We also just hit the 125th anniversary of the AGA. That's incredible. Yeah, it's a really old person. <laughs> <laughs> but it always needs young invigoration. So, can we honor some of the things that have developed over the last 125 years from acknowledging Beaumont and Alexis St. Martin, who was the unfortunate guy who developed the fistula? But this was in the era of not well-informed consent and all this other stuff. But we learned a lot from back then, all the way to physiologic discoveries. I remember a 1934 paper from Hugh R. Butt. <laughs> that was his real name. Perfect, perfect name. Perfect. Uh, he's a professor at a Mayo Clinic, very smart guy, you know, showing how bile is important for fat soluble vitamin absorption. You know, it's physiologic all the way to 1957, where the first demonstration of the flexible endoscope was done, etc. Now we're in the era of liver transplant and immunosuppressives and advanced imaging and artificial intelligence and better understanding of Crohn's disease, although we're still not quite there, but we understand a lot of the drivers behind it, figuring out the microbiome. I mean, we, we're doing a lot of stuff in GI, and so times have changed. 
and people like you on this podcast are the key for its future. And you know, maybe in 15, 20 years, you'll be you'll be on this microphone and you'll be saying, "Oh yeah, we do this, and we we do gene editing of cancers, and we do this." And and it's like, okay, that's not possible today, but it might be possible in 15 or 20 years. But you guys will be at the forefront, and you'll be delivering it to the patients, and that's awesome. Yeah, that's totally awesome. Speaking of which, actually, I'm curious, it kind of emerges your last two comments about colon cancer screening and like innovation. I remember hearing about the blood test. Maybe it's like septonine methylation. How far are we? Where are we now with that? There's probably about, I'm going to guess, 50 attempts at blood tests right now. Of course, you got to do the studies. You got to look at the sensitivity and specificity. Methylated sept9 is FDA approved, but it has a lot of false positives. And so I'm not the biggest recommender of it. I think we have fit is way better and way more cost effective. But at some point, we will get the blood test. There are a number of companies and I'll say academics that are examining a variety of different markers or mix of different types of markers, anything from metabolomic to protein to DNA to RNA, you name it. People are examining this. I've seen multiple abstracts at DDW. There's also additional stool markers. Some of them are very good already. Uh, you know, we, we test for hemoglobin and FIT. The Cologuard product is FIT plus DNA and methylated and genetic markers. There's going to be a Cologuard 2.0 with additional markers in which they're trying to get up the sensitivity for detecting the polyps. I've heard of probably about 10 or 15 tests based on microbiome analysis from the stool that might predict cancer, but I haven't seen any big studies just yet, but I know people are working on that. We're going to probably have, and the wonderful thing about the GI tract is we have access to it very easily. You guys access it every day. We ingest on one end and we put something out the other. So we have access to what's going in and what's coming out. It's a natural orifice. And that could be complemented by perhaps whatever leaks in the blood. I think the future will improve on those. Maybe it's one or the other or combination of two. As I said, my comment earlier, we might be sitting here 15 or 20 years later and you do draw a little blood, get a little stool, and you're 99% sensitive for colon cancer, and maybe you're 85% sensitive for polyp, whatever markers that is, and you're not going to get a diagnostic colonoscopy because they're negative. So the day of the diagnostic or plain screen colonoscopy might be going away, and unless one of those or com- combination of tests are positive, oh, you there's a risk, there's a high chance you may have an adenoma or there's a high risk you have cancer. You're going to get a colonoscopy. It may go that, like I said, for the ERCP, but we'll see. I mean, that's depends on how well you guys and companies and other academics develop these markers. It's funny because. I almost think like like you said, if that changes and I almost say that's a bread and butter right now, screening, yes. colonoscopies, colon cancer, age of screening goes earlier. Like we were talking about, like a lot of what did you say, eighteen million people? Eighteen million people between yeah. forty five, forty nine. So I don't think 
colonoscopy is dead. I think there's going to be more. So, you know, you got to remember when you do a screening colonoscopy, there's 3.64 RVs. I forgot what it is. But if you do a polypectomy, it's 3.9 RVUs or whatever. So you're just going to be doing a lot of more 3.9 RVUs versus the 3.6 RVUs because almost every case you have, there'll be some false negatives or false positives, whatever, or false negatives, I should say. But let's say the bulk, instead of, you know, right now in practice, probably 60 to 65% of colonoscopies are completely normal. Nothing. Now, can you imagine a world where only 20% are completely normal and 80% you're doing multiple things? And snaring is caring. <laughs> yes, there is caring. <laughs> so I don't think colonoscopies are going to go, to go away. I'm not saying that at all. But gotcha. they will be, you'll be adding five minutes to the procedure for doing other things because the predictive value of something being in there goes up. There's been studies now when someone has a positive fit or a positive cologuard, you actually spend more time in the colon because mm-hmm. it's positive. Okay. So you so the in your mind you got a positive predictive value that something's there, even though sometimes it's wrong. So you're looking and you're spending more time. There's studies out there. And one of the arguments is, well, should if with a positive test, should you get paid more? But I CMS doesn't do that. I see a lot of Lynch patients, FAP patients, Collins patients. No one gets paid more. I mean, you, you get paid with a colonoscopy with polypectomy on a Collins patient, even though you're doing a colonoscopy every year versus, you know, someone who just has a positive fit or, or cologuard. So anyway, I think the non-invasive tests will get better. We have to use them based on the volume of people and I bet at every one of your places, there's probably a backlog waiting for a colonoscopy, which is a good thing. You got a job. <laughs> it's not going away tomorrow. <laughs> but we've had a couple problems at our institution where someone has a positive fit, and they, don't, they can't get a colonoscopy until March. And here we are in late September. And so we have to have the right algorithms to get those people in sooner because they shouldn't wait six months especially with a positive test. I mean, if it's negative screening, fine. But if someone has a positive test, you got to get them in. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.